Welcome, everyone, to episode 27 of our podcast called That's So Second Millennium. I'm Bill Schmidt, and I'm pleased to be back with my friend uh, uh, and uh, geologist and uh, philosopher, I'd say, um, uh, Dr. Paul Giesting. And uh, we've been exploring science and religion and the philosophy of science. Uh, past, present, and future, and especially from Paul's uh, unique perspectives uh, in the world of geology. Um, and uh, uh, Paul, welcome. Uh, it's good to be back in conversation with you. Good to be talking with you, Bill. Yeah, thanks. And uh, last time, I know you were talking particularly about uh, some uh, some uh, rather complicated uh, uh, terms. Uh, that tied uh, geology to uh, the uh, past and, and present understandings of how things kind of um, uh, move in progression, but yet with uh, continuity, and how we can be in dialogue with folks who have different perspectives on uh, the time frames and the uh, uh, phenomena involved in understanding geology. Uh, and the episode today that you've proposed uh, has a wonderful uh, uh, title, uh, Relative Dating. So uh, I can't wait to, to uh, pursue that in, in greater detail there. Uh, please, uh, please continue on from, from, the, from the last episode there. When you, when you get to these chapters in your uh, geology textbook, there is a certain set of puns that are customarily made. <laughs> right. Rocks and minerals, but yeah. Yeah. Yes. We'll pass. We'll, we, we won't flush those out in specifics. We'll, we'll leave those to the listener's imagination. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. So this is gonna uh, this is gonna build on the same foundation as last episode. We're gonna take it in a somewhat different direction. Uh huh. Um, so there's you know so of course what what's one of the things that gets thrown at religion you know immediately by you know people who are self-anointed atheists vanguard types um, is evolution, right? You know, the bats, you know, and, and of course in Chesterton's phrase, which may as well be, you know, one of the mottos for this podcast, but, you know, the conflict, the noisy conflict between, you know, ignorant scientists and ignorant, you know, biblical minimalists, um, obviously we're paraphrasing here, those, those weren't Chesterton's exact terms, but Fair enough. this noisy conflict that would be better off left in the Victorian era, and yet we're still hashing it out. Um, and, uh, because yeah. <laughs> right, right. It's, it's, it's based on very shallow reasoning on both sides. So, and so what we're going to try to talk about today in the context of relative dating um, is the, is the work that really, you know, it started in the 18th century, but it really got underway, and it builds off of Steno's laws, and of course, Steno is a century older than that, right, the late 70s, right. um, and people just gradually getting used to handling Steno's tools and building more and more complex structures with them, taking them places that Steno, of course, would not have recognized um, and would have probably have felt a little queasy about, um, but lots of people felt queasy about it. I mean, that's kind of the whole oh. point. So... So the relative dating separates itself into two, you know, two broad categories. So there's the Steno's laws, 
Steno's laws work for an individual outcrop or, you know, an individual locality, you know. So several square miles, maybe, you can use Steno's laws to, you know, go from one formation to another, to another, to another, uh, depending on how much rock you have exposed. Right, right. <laughs> easier in some areas than others, uh, like Wyoming, where I just was, make it much, much easier. Uh, when you go from the Ozarks, where everything's covered with uh, forest, which is where, you know, I went to Wash U in St. Louis for my undergrad, so I took a field methods class to get ready for field camp, and that was much more difficult <laughs> going out to Wyoming where I went to field camp and there's you know foliage once in a while once in a while yeah but yeah there's the, there's the rocks ready to dig into rocks. Yeah. right um so with with luck you can get uh, a relative dating sequence using Steno's laws for a local area but at some point you're going to sink below the surface you're going to go out into the basin you're going to get covered with dirt and you're not going to be able to correlate based on surface exposure beyond that barrier. Right. So what would take you beyond that barrier? Well, what people gradually realized around the beginning of the 19th century is that what in Steno's time was taken as an argument that, you know, fossil shells were not generated by living things because they don't match existing living things. Uh -huh. That was too much for European thinkers to, to, contemplate because they were they were in the process of you know that that's the thing that's the kind of post-reformation box that people were trying because of course you get luther and the succeeding uh reformation gurus he's a strange uh conflation of terms there <laughs> but you you get those thinkers throwing down the gauntlet of by god it's the bible the whole bible well not even the whole bible that's one of those stories um, my select pieces of the Bible and nothing but the Bible. Uh, and there's nothing, there's really nothing outside the Bible. I mean, you know, in another context, you might call it the sort of madrasa approach to education where, you know, yeah, very good. stereotypical education of whether, whether it's the Quran or whether it's the Christian Bible, you know, that this holy book has what's important to know and everything else is really kind of BS, but we're, it's not that important. It must not be that important. Right. Um, so that that's uh, which is an, in a nutshell the biblical minimalist approach as I okay. as I try to call it to distinguish yeah. it from biblical literalism which you can take the Bible literally and if you take the Bible literally enough you see that it is skating around certain holes. You can almost oh. I mean an example in another context that if you read the Gospel of John or at yeah. least this was my experience you read the Gospel of John often enough in the context, and you, if you read the Gospels as a whole, so you read the Synoptic Gospels and you read the Gospel of John, I at some point began to remark just how often the Gospel of John skates around holes. And in many cases, those holes, well, in, in, in all the cases that I've identified, those holes are things that are mentioned explicitly in the Synoptic Gospels. So yeah. for example, you know, so the Gospel of John starts with that beautiful theological reflection on the Word and weaves into it the mission of John the Baptist, segueing into, you know, a scene at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry where he's calling his first disciples, and John the Baptist is involved, because some of John the Baptist's disciples are being, you know, almost, John is almost detailing them off to go follow Jesus. 
it's around the time of Jesus' baptism, but Jesus' baptism is explicitly off camera. It doesn't actually happen. John yeah, the Baptist just... mentions it having just happened. Just happened. Uh -huh. Andrew and the other disciple off to go see Jesus. Yeah. It, it doesn't happen on camera. Uh -huh. so, and then, and then, of course, the Gospel of John has that beautiful, long, um, very theologically important uh, discourse on the Eucharist in John six. Right. But so, so let's skip forward. You know, as as the other example, let's skip forward to the uh, the Last Supper. Does the Gospel of John have the institution of the Eucharist? No, that happens off camera. Oh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. All sorts of other things. It has the washing of the feet. It has four chapters worth of Jesus, you know, farewell discourse to his disciples. It doesn't have the actual blessing and the actual eating of the Eucharist. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I mean, and, and of course, then it's a little much for me to try to speculate what his motivations were. Did he feel like the story had already been told? Was it not necessary? Did he not want to save Papyrus? I doubt that. But um, although... <laughs> Well, there's the observation, you know, there's a whole bunch of other stuff we could say, but, you know, the whole world would be filled with the books that, you know, would be written. So we'll just stop here. It's, <laughs> but that, okay. So take that perspective. The right. Bible contains passages that, you know, in this case, it's, you know, the Synoptic Gospels and then the Gospel of John skates around them. In some places, it just clearly is skating around things that are explicitly mentioned in the Synoptic Gospels. Um, What's the book of Genesis? Does the book of Genesis have a clear, you know, line by line account of how the world was made? It has a very stylistic account. And then it follows that up with a very brief account that, you know, pushes, you know, I mean, the, the second chapter of Genesis is not trying to focus on anything other than the history of man explicitly. Yeah, that's right. In the beginning, when God was creating heavens and the earth, bracket all those details. Right. You know, he created, you know, he sculpted man and breathed the breath of life into him and then when we're and then we're off to the races talking about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Right. Um it's not trying to address these issues. That that's taking the Bible completely literally, but it's not trying and, and taking it completely literally means that you can't be minimalist. Yeah. Clearly the Bible's not trying to talk about this. It's trying, it's bracketing this off. This is not the subject I'm talking about today. Um, leaving that for later, as it, okay. as it appears. Um, here we are. Um, okay, so <laughs> I've been wanting to make that point explicitly. I haven't, I haven't quite, you know, hadn't quite gotten there yet until now. Well, it's, it's an interesting point, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think, it's, I think it's fundamental to, There, there is this false dichotomy between you either want to, jump all the way to, well, the Bible is just this bunch of sort of fairy stories. We don't need to take it all that seriously and we can just sort of, and they can sort of almost treat it like a Rorschach blot where you can just use it to verify what you already think in the moral and religious plane right. and spiritual, you know, whatever spirituality you're sort of already coming to it with um, and just, and just ferret out the pieces that match what you already think. Um, which of course everybody does that to some extent, but you can, but you can be, you can get yourself, you can talk yourself into taking it that way explicitly and being a quote liberal, you know, I shudder using that term, but you know, uh, the listener will recognize it. Right. That's what I'm talking about in this specific context. 
And then, of course, the other side, the sort of fundamentalist side, as Guy Consolano would say, um, we're, we're drifting away from the term fundamentalist, but, uh, but yeah, that the, what I'm calling the biblical minimalist approach of this is the only thing worth knowing. It has everything that's really worth knowing and everything else is just, you know, it's just stuff that we shouldn't regard as being particularly reliable and we should look at it with suspicion, you know, actually going out and consulting the universe and seeing what it tells us. Right. We, should, we should not bother with that. Um, right. So when you, but when you go out and consult the universe that we live in, and specifically this, you know, planet that we live on, it tells you, it tells you a story that fills in a lot of those gaps. You know, at least it allows you to get a sketch of what must be underneath and surrounding, you know, the biblical text, even taking the biblical text completely literally. There, there is a, there is a, again, again, there is an Aristotelian mean to be found here. That's that's what I that's what I'm trying to argue. So back right. to back to relative dating. So we got Steno's laws. We got the Steno's laws type of dating where we can take an individual outcrop and and put it in sequence. Okay, this sandstone is below this shale, is below this limestone, is below this sandstone. And and if you do that, you can on a regional scale, say Wyoming itself. You can go look in the Wind River Basin at Lander, Wyoming, and you'll see a certain sequence of formations. This red bed, this uh, the Gypsum Springs formation, which is this muddy formation with some gypsum in it, and then there's this orange sandstone called the Nugget Sandstone on top of it. You go elsewhere in Wyoming, you'll find that same sequence of formations. Else, you know, other basins, other you know, the the feet of other mountain ranges, you'll find the sequence of rocks again. And they'll be pretty similar, maybe not identical. Um, eventually, you run out of room to make that kind of correlation. That sort of lithostratigraphic, there's a word. So let's break that down. Litho, so, looking at the rocks, strato, which means looking at the flat planes. And in this case, it means by extension, we're using Steno's laws of superposition, right? Right. atom is on top of this other stratum, and, it, and that pattern repeats at different outcrops over a scale of maybe hundreds of miles, right. maybe tens of miles, maybe hundreds of miles. So you can get that far with just Steno's laws. What you need to go beyond that and what in the early 19th century people you know, saw is you can use fossils. And what really, what's really intriguing is that you have this long succession of fossils. And if you look at rocks in Wales, you'll see things that you do not see today you will see these little exoskeletons of these funny trilobite things. Hmm. Right. Trilobites. Um, once you, if, you're, if you're from completely outside uh, paleontology, you think of dinosaurs, right? That's the very first thing that the common man probably uh, thinks about, or the common woman. If you're just up to the fringes of it, and you, which is where I am, I'm a neurologist for a living, um, but as, as a member of the geo community, the first thing I may think of when I think of uh, paleontology is actually trilobites. Yeah. They're very dramatic. They're very cute. Um, and they only lived in the Paleozoic. So you okay. only, they only live in the oldest rocks that have clearly visible fossils. I see. So, and that's, 
You know, that takes us all the way from about 550, what we now know to be about 550 to about 250 million years ago. So more than half that column is the Paleozoic. Wow. of ice didn't die out until the very end of that. Hmm. The biggest mass extinction in the record. Interesting. So, so you can find those things. And trilobites came in such, you know, just to use them as an example, they came in a wide variety of shapes. They look sort of vaguely cockroach-like. They're cuter than cockroaches, just saying. Um, but, and they had antennas that had strange shapes. They would have, you know, some of them had big frilly exoskeleton, you know, fringes, scallops and spikes and whatnot. And some of them were very, very compact. They were just these lozenge shaped. And of course they came in many different sizes. I don't know if the biggest one might've been as much as a foot long, but you know, certainly they came in very small sizes down to, you know, an eighth of an inch or something maybe. So, so they're very distinguishable. They're helpful, and and they only in an individual trilobite shape is only found in certain rocks. You know, if you look at a if you look at a given outcrop, and if if you have 500 feet of outcrop here in Wales, you might find 10 feet of outcrop with a given species of trilobite, and then it's succeeded by other species of trilobite. However, you can go to Probably, again, I'm not a paleontologist, so I'm sort of speculating. Let's say you can go to South Germany and find a completely different rock, but you'll find the same sequence of trilobites in it. So it uh -huh. might be shale in Wales, it might be limestone in Germany, but and you'll find, you know, maybe the shale has tons of these trilobites and the limestone only has a few, but nevertheless, you'll be able to pull apart, oh, this particular trilobite. And in fact, you might be able to go to South America or Maine or someplace and find that or British Columbia and find this exact shape of trilobite. And it will be in the same sequence, you know, depending on, you know, and of course there's, you know, there's cases of mistaken identity, this trilobite similar, but not identical. Um, but the work that went on and more and more people getting involved in it over the course of the 19th century into the 20th century, um, you know, you were able to erect this whole sequence and you would find the sequence repeating now, not just regionally. Um, it wouldn't, you know, a given fossil won't be absolutely worldwide any more than any given animal. There are some things we call cosmopolitan. Those are the best, The ideal, what we call index fossil, the type of fossil that's good for this sort of correlation from one region to another. The best kind of index fossil is cosmopolitan. It's all across the world. And of course, these are all oceanic, you know, so they're found in every ocean basin that was present at the time. Um, and they were only present for a short time in the, in the stratigraphic column. So there are a few things that have been, you know, there are, there are some things that are uh, indistinguishable from their ancestors in the Paleozoic. There's a little shelly brachiopod, I think it's called Lingula. Um, which is named for the fact that it has this, it, 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 it's just this pair of shells with this great big tongue sticking out of it. Not dreadfully, <laughs> dreadfully distinctive. Indeed. Um, and its ancestors in like the Pennsylvanian, <laughs> 300 million years ago, Good. look identical. You can see oh. fossils that look just like that. Those are not helpful. <laughs> Those yeah. are not helpful for this sort of work. What you want is something that lived 500,000 years everywhere and then it and then it went away. So, so take that perspective. So let's let's go back to the perspective. 
this perspective of the conflict between science and religion and our sort of self-appointed, self-anointed champion of science. Right. Who's going to throw down the gauntlet and say, evolution means we can't believe the Bible. It's all important. Well, evolution means multiple things. What I would regard as incontrovertible is that there's a succession of species. Right. That's, a, that's an intellectual part of the theory of evolution. Yeah. There's been a succession of species. I don't think at this point it makes any sense given the insanely huge volume of work that's been done on, you know, on biostratigraphy, what fossil belongs in what bed. And of course, now that we've done absolute dating, which we'll talk about in the next episode, uh -huh. this time scale, you know, and of course there's no, there's no proof in science, the way there's proof in mathematics, that's an often made point that gets forgotten. We have it out to, you know, we've tested this theory and it's consistent everywhere that we think, you know, it's, it's consistent enough that the places where we don't see a matchup, we reasonably anticipate there having been some sort of error yeah. in the process, an error in the uh, absolute dating, an error in the original attribution of this rock to being in this age. Maybe there, there are ways for a rock to, you know, for a fossil to appear in a rock that's older than it should be. Right. Um, or to make that mistake out in the field, essentially, to not, to not distinguish things carefully enough. There are ways to make mistakes like that. The consistency is such that it's very, very, it's a very comfortable intellectual statement to say, where we where we don't see matchups are places where we've made some sort of mistake in the dating, where where we've made some sort of mistake in one of those processes that we could track down, and in general, we get right to work tracking them down. Yeah. And as soon as the grant money comes in, somebody uh -huh. comes in to clear up the problem, <laughs> right. to find out what the actual solution is. Um, so the succession of species and the the geologic column, the stratigraphic column that was erected by these two forms of relative dating. Because of course, the limitation, why, you know, why don't we do, why isn't biostratigraphy bias the only thing that we do? Well, there are two limitations. One of them is that fossils aren't found in large enough quantity in many types of rocks. Certainly not, you know, nice, <laughs> high-grade metamorphic rocks, medium-grade metamorphic rocks. Uh -huh. Even low-grade metamorphic rocks, it's pretty hard to find fossils in. Once in a great while, you can find a, a fossil that you can sort of identify in a low-grade metamorphic rock, I think. I couldn't cite an example right now. Okay. Uh, metamorphic rocks are rocks that have been cooked under heat and pressure. Yeah. And certainly you don't find fossils to speak of in igneous rocks that started out as magma or lava. Right, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and again, you can find uh, sort of unusual exceptions to that. You could find a fossil that was buried by a lava flow that's sort of incorporated into your igneous rock. You might conceivably be able to recognize something of it, um, but usually not. So usually what we're talking about is sedimentary rocks and not even all sedimentary rocks. Okay. So if you picture picture a nice sandy beach, right? Right. Probably right. with a hurricane bearing down on it. Right. That is not a great environment for preserving fossils. You can find some. You certainly, you know, you wander the beach, you find shells, but that's the present day beach. 
um, by the time that beach has been lithified in the geologic record, what do you think all the sand comes from? It's broken up, depending on where you're at. In Hawaii, right. it's broken up bits of shell. Oh. That's kind of mostly what are bro broken up bits of coral. Um, right, right. If you're in a different uh, continental environment, most of it may be sand, and those little sand grains tossed about by the waves are battering your shells into oblivion. Oh, indeed. So it's that, those are what we call, a beach is what we call a high-energy environment, because there's all of this wave action beating your strand line into pieces. All of the, yeah. all the shells that you have in that environment are liable. You know, again, some things survive. Some things get lucky and survive. Um, but you're not going to have nearly as many fossils to work with in rocks from that environment. So even sedimentary rocks are not all good for this. Um, conglomerates, even worse. You know, then we've got pebbles and boulders crashing around, breaking up your fossils, whatever fossil might have been in it to start with. So, so not all sedimentary rocks. You want something from a nice, quiet, preferably offshore environment. That's why dinosaur paleontology, despite the fact that it's sort of our generic form of paleontology, is actually really, really difficult because most dinosaurs lived on land and land is not a good place for fossils to get preserved. Really? Um, what you really want are shales, which is far enough offshore that mud can start settling out of the water column, or limestone, which is even usually further offshore, um, where lime starts to, you know, I mean, precipitates by, via the action of microscopic organisms or macroscopic organisms like coral. Um, right. There's, there's a whole continuum. Everything from plankton up to coral reefs um, can start can form limestone, and those are nice, quiet environments. Yes. Where you can lithify fossils into the fossil record, and then you you have a lot of stuff to work with when you're doing this. So what you're doing for any given locality to find out, you know, if this is 1900, and this is you know you're in darkest, deepest, darkest Africa. And you were trying to figure out where this region near, let's say, Lake Victoria belongs in the stratigraphic record. You were looking through the hillsides for uh, exposures of shale and limestone. And then you, you pull those, you look for fossils, you look around for fossils that you recognize, that you can correlate back to the stuff you know in Europe or back right. to the stuff you know in New England or something like that. Um, and then you can use Steno's laws to get your local stratigraphic column in, in full detail. And know, based on the fossil keybeds here and there, that it belongs in the, let's say, Ordovician. It belongs in that particular period of geologic time. Right. Those, those index fossils correlate. So that's, that's relative dating. That was, you know, by 1900, it was a full-blown system. And the thing about it is, to, to reiterate the point, we, uh, that we made last time is that people in the early 19th century, especially in England, especially in Protestant England, and a lot of these people were clergymen, um, they didn't want biblical minimalism to be disproved. They right. wanted that to work out. They wanted Noah's flood to have been a global recognizable event. And by the 1830s, they had all argued themselves out of it. They had argued each other out of it. The people who were really, who really continued seriously working in the field, you know, they were either argued out of it by their colleagues or they argued themselves out of it. Huh. Anthony 
Allen's book has some very interesting quotes. I think, you know, Sedgwick, who is one of the great, you know, stratigraphers of the mid 19th century. Um, I believe that was his background. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm mixing him up with Murchison. But in any case, and, and I'm not sure whether he was a clergyman or not, but in any case, he's, you know, he's on record as publicly recanting. That was wrong. We, you know, we, we threw this hypothesis around and used to interpret a bunch of stuff and we were wrong. Yeah, fair enough. I was going to say, uh, uh, and uh, tell me if this is, is worth adding to the episode. It sounds like um, uh, it, was a, it was an interesting um, uh, attempt at hybridization between science and religion, the whole idea of sola scriptura. Um, uh, sola scriptura, they were trying to apply uh, uh, not only to religion, uh, but to but to science, and they even argued themselves out of that. Is that yeah, yeah? I mean, they they tried to use the documentation of of scripture, and and again, it it hinged on interpreting those passages and whatever Noah's flood is in whatever chapter you know, right. chapter eight, nine, ten, eleven. I forget of of Genesis, and taking it and extending it. See, this is the whole sort of biblical minimalist idea creeping in. Yeah. You know, that the text, you know, sort of getting carried away with the drama of the text of the story of Noah's flood and assuming it must be, you know, worldwide. Um, there are there are bits and pieces of it that are arguably, you know, indications that it was just regional. Um, that what, you know, God was... <laughs> allowed this flood to wipe out a particular corrupt population of people who had, <clears throat> and in the, in the, in the text, they have, gosh, they've interbred with angelic or demonic beings, or, I mean, and again, that's something else that you, you'd want to be very careful in interpreting and very willing to say, I don't actually know what that was, what that phrase was supposed to mean. I mean, yeah, that's the thing is that, we have these texts at such an enormous distance. Mm. They're, oh, I mean, the, the manuscript evidence, you know, the Dead Sea Scrolls pushed it back to, you know, the first century BC or something like yeah. that. Right. I, don't, I don't know for those particular passages in Genesis. Um, that's still how many centuries, you know, even, even in a, um, even in a very jaded, um, these are all, these are all just made up stories, interpretation of it. They're centuries older than that. They're, you know, they're, I don't know, fifth, sixth, seventh century BC. Um, if not, I mean, if they're actually recorded, you know, by, well, I mean, you know, the, the tradition that Moses wrote them all down doesn't, you know, that, that, that arose at some point in the rabbinic literature. Uh, yeah. Um, that's also kind of odd because, you know, so certainly Moses never presents himself as the uh, writer of it in the actual text. Right. right. Um, <clears throat> but that's, you know, that would push it back to, you know, 1200, 1400 BC. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, and there's, you know, a manuscript, you know, and, and, and of course, you know, the, the scholarly belief that um, the, the Torah that we have in the book of Genesis in particular is a patchwork of different documents. Some of those documents may be very old. I mean, we know people were writing before that and, you know, they would collect 
you know, they had a reverence for the past that, you know, in some ways we have, and in some ways we don't, um, we just, and we just don't know. That's the thing, you know, reading textual criticism, it reminds me, you know, even down to the present day, it reminds me of 19th century sort of crackpot geology where there was not enough data to go around to support all the hypotheses. And, you know, in terms of textual criticism, documents are so hard to preserve, you know, there's a lot of stuff that we may never, you know, we'll just never have the evidence to yeah. say one or the other. And we'll have to accept that if we want to be intellectually honest. We yeah. don't want to be intellectually honest. We can make shit up and say, well, oh, yeah, right. Yeah. Jesus must have had a wife because everybody got married in that culture. Right. right. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. Well, this is very interesting, and I, I like I like that addition of the uh, of the uh, the per, per, perception of uh, sola scriptura, the uh, the attempts to uh, tie it uh, to make it a tie between uh, uh, science and religion, but in an age of uh, you know uh, more widespread uh, discussion and analysis of of the Bible and of, of science. Uh, uh, to use a, a geographical term, perhaps, uh, the truth rises uh, to the top, uh, one might say. Uh, am I right? It's a geodynamical term, yes. Yes, exactly. So um, uh, that's, I think, a good place for us to stop uh, this episode and continue with the next uh, episode, to which we'll invite our listeners. I'll look forward to a continuation on this uh, narrative arc, as we like to call it. And thank you very much, Paul. We'll be, we'll be back to you soon. Okay. Thanks, Bill. Okay.